0: Welcome guys to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I'm very happy to have James Krieger with me today. And first of all, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has reviewed the podcast already. The reviews have been fantastic. Any more reviews would be very welcomed and we will be doing a kind of giveaway to anyone who has reviewed the podcast. So definitely get in there. Anyone who has reviewed it in the past will be put in there as well. So without further ado, let's introduce James. So James Krieger is the founder of Waitology. If you haven't been on that website, on James's website, he's recently redone it and it's looking fantastic. The information on there is great. There's some free information on there. There's some kind of loads of different services that you can look up on there. And you can even see my testimonial on there uh, because I have met James uh, when he came over to the UK and did a seminar at Bath, which was my favorite seminar, even though the other guys were great. James's seminar was my favourite, it was absolutely fantastic, and uh, that's why I wanted to get James on today. So James has a master's degree in nutrition and in exercise science, so he certainly knows his stuff, and you've probably heard of James Krieger because he's been doing lots of different research, well, meta-analyses in different aspects with people like Brad Schoenfeld, uh, who I have also had on the podcast. So James is obviously the pub, a published author, has done loads of articles on his website, is if you just Google James Krieger, you're going to find a kind of whole host of great information. James has also worked with some really kind of um, important people, such as like guys from Costco, helping them with their weight management and all sorts of things like that. Uh, so I think it's fantastic that he's got not only kind of the science kind of the, science-y, the bits he's gone and, gone and done his studies, but also has the experience. He's actually used it and put it into practice. Uh, and has even done it to himself. So you competed, I believe, last year. Was it last year? I think it was. It was uh, uh,
1: 2015. It was late uh September, I think, of 2015.
0: I think. Ah, uh, so almost just over a year ago, and yeah, you yeah, could be an immense physique for the first time, and looked fantastic. Lost a load of weight, and from what I hear, it wasn't like torture. You did it in a very scientific approach, and yeah. Yeah, saw a great result. So I think that's really cool, and. I, like I said, doing kind of conferences for big organizations all over the world, which is fantastic. So I think we're really lucky to have you on today to give us some of your time. And yeah. I really wanted to delve into hypertrophy programming. So people who keep up with the podcast absolutely love learning about growing muscle, which I can completely understand is like a <laughs> big audience is powerlifters and bodybuilders muscle size is important for that. And I know you've done a lot of work in kind of single sets versus multiple sets and the dose response and kind of how many sets looks to be optimal for hypertrophy, rest times, time under tension, all of these things. And it's fantastic to have all of that. Um, And we've even got additional research with like high frequency and things. Uh, The first thing I wanted to maybe touch on is I actually remember having a conversation with you on Facebook a while back about your own training programming. So I wanted to kind of just touch on how was... How did that go? Because I know it was quite high frequency. Um, I think you might have, people might relate it to kind of Mena Henselman, his sort of approach, yeah. attacking body parts maybe like four plus times a week. Uh, how did that go? How did you uh, get on with that?
1: Yeah, I eventually stopped training with that high of a frequency. Uh, what I found was I didn't really notice any better gains than when I had trained typically with a, maybe a two or three day per week frequency. And the other thing I noticed is, you know, I'm 40, you know, I just turned 43, so being in my early 40s, I was just, I was getting little joint issues and everything, even though I was really making an effort to try to periodize my training and vary my repetition ranges and not, you know, I was trying to be really careful, it's still, I was just getting all kinds of little issues that were cropping up, so it was, it was obvious to me the really high frequency wasn't working for me. Um and when you actually delve further into the literature now, you know, the idea between really high-frequency training kind of comes from this idea of muscle protein synthesis. So, uh, you know, when you train in the gym, you stimulate muscle protein synthesis, which is the process by which your your muscles are building new tissue. Um, and that starts basically immediately after your workout. I mean, it's, you know, some people talk about, oh, your, your muscles need so many days to recover before they grow. And that, no, that's not true. Your muscles are growing right away, mm-hmm. like right after your training session. Um, and so, the thought behind high-frequency training was, you know, in trained individuals, it, it's been observed that the, um, the length of the protein synthesis response doesn't last as long as, as people who are less trained. Mm-hmm. And so, this idea that, oh, well, if you're well-trained, you need to train more frequently, you need to, you need to get those spikes in protein synthesis more often. And I kind of bought into that at the time, but then when you, but now when you actually look at the research now, um, that idea was based off of what we would call mixed muscle protein synthesis. So your, your muscles have different types of protein, and mixed muscle protein synthesis includes all the protein that's in your muscle, including like mitochondria, mitochondrial proteins, and things like that. Um, proteins that don't necessarily contribute to muscle size, and what we really care about is what we would consider myofibril mm-hmm. protein synthesis—the actual my, the actual things that actually make up the contractile tissue. And when you look at the time course for myofibril protein synthesis, it's actually about the same between trained and untrained subjects. we actually call into question the idea of doing really high frequencies. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, even if you're a well-trained person. Um, and, uh, you know, the difference between trained and untrained is just that the magnitude of the spike is not as high. Um, there's a dampening of the response as you become more trained. But, again, for myofibril synthesis, it seems that the time course is about the same. So, so this idea of training body parts five, six days per week, you know, might be questionable at least over a long period of time. There may be, there may be some value in doing it over an extremely short period, two, three weeks, something like that. Uh, like a short-term overreaching type thing uh, but you know over an extended period of time you know I don't I don't the, the data is not really supportive and unfortunately there's not a lot of good research you know some people have talked about the Norwegian powerlifting study you know um, that study what still hasn't been published to my knowledge but uh, you know that was an elite power so I don't really I'm not sure it's applicable to most people mm-hmm. um, you know then there's a uh, there's one study out there on ath on um ath- uh, female athletes that you know they did twice a day training but it was volume equated um, and they saw some increased gains there but again it was only a two or three week it was only a three week study which would suggest, again maybe there's a benefit to doing really high frequencies over just a you know short bursts of time occasionally you know um, and then finally there's really one other study. It was actually talked about in the Wernbaum, you know, kind of that famous Wernbaum. It's not really a meta-analysis, but there was one, you know, he he looked at frequency, and there was one kind of outlier study that they were training, like, each body part, was it six or 12 days a week? I I don't remember. It was like, it was, or 12 times a week. I I can't, it was a ridiculous amount. (laughs) But when you look at the study, it was actually a vascular occlusion study Um, so they are using really, really light weights, obviously. So you can handle that. Your joints can handle that type of frequency when you're doing that. So, um, so now I'm pretty much, you know, I've kind of gone back to the typical two to three days per week frequency, you know, which seems to agree with my joints a lot better. And actually I I almost think I make better gains off of that. So
0: cool. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because I think, especially when you look at, kind of people who train and they don't necessarily, I mean, the bros, they do yeah. kind of hit things massively one time a week and they don't do this high-frequency approach whether or not they're doing the right thing. And um, Often when they do try and bring up muscles, they try and hit them with higher frequencies, but I don't think they're ever going as many times a week as kind of four plus. Yeah. Did you find during your training it was kind of all muscle groups that the high frequency was poor for? Did you find kind of maybe... I know smaller muscle groups might kind of recover a bit faster. Do you find you could do higher frequency with those? Do you think there's? I I didn't really notice
1: any difference other than maybe I think calf training I seemed like I could do with a higher frequency, but uh, I didn't really notice a whole lot of I think difference between muscle groups. You know, I I mean, it was nice to do it for a short period of time, and one of the reasons you know I did it was actually during my contest prep when when things started getting really close. No, I found you know when I was three or four weeks out, I was kind of off-target and I was like, dang, I'm going to have to lose some more in this very short period of time, Um, but I wanted to, you know, so I knew I was going to have to diet pretty hard for that period, short period of time, but I wanted to at least keep stimulating as protein synthesis as possible, which is why I I think I ended up training each body part like five days per week, Mm -hmm. but I was doing stuff like, you know, the 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 per training session volume was really low, I was doing stuff like drop sets or like um, mile reps, you know. Uh, uh you know, little thing where it's kind of a yeah. rest pause technique. So I was doing stuff like that. Uh, so I wasn't, you know, I was, I was making sure that the frequency of the, the heavier stuff was not was not too much. So mm-hmm.
0: yeah, it's not like you're going maxing out every day. If I think yeah. like, if anyone's trying to do a high frequency, and Meno himself, if we talk about him and his programming, I know he doesn't like do just heavy all the time. It is kind of like we know in programming, we know like height high, medium, light days, those sort of yeah. things definitely occur during that period of time. Yeah. Now, on the re- kind of touching on frequency, do you see any benefit to then periodizing it? Do you have kind of, I know in, uh, you're probably familiar with Brad Schoenfeld's max muscle plan and he yeah. manipulates frequency quite a lot through that to bring up volume throughout the macro cycle. Is that something yeah. you think's kind of something beneficial, required or just so, I, mean, I think there's some benefit,
1: I, especially I think if you use frequency as an overload tool or as a as mainly a technique to increase your weekly volume. So you could start off with a lower frequency, and then rather than adding sets in each session, if you want to increase your volume, you increase the f- frequency instead. Um, I think that might be a better way to up your weekly volume uh, because there's really there's going to be a limit, and we don't know where that limit is. There's going to be a limit to how much protein synthesis that you can really stimulate in a single session. And so it would make sense rather than just keep adding more and more sets in a session to, you know, you know, if you're doing each body part, let's say twice per week, you know, start going three times per week and maybe just up your volume that way and maybe even, you know, just doing maybe kind of a volume ramp type mm-hmm. thing where, you know, and you use the frequency. And I actually, Jeremy Lenecke. They had they just published I think it was just kind of a review paper on training frequency and they kind of mentioned that too using frequency as your tool to um, kind of up your weekly training volume until um, so you get maybe let's say you build up to like a really short term overreaching phase of of one to two weeks where you're doing a really high frequency just for a really short period of time you know so.
0: Yeah, I really like that approach because as we know from your studies, volume and there's a dose response between volume and hypertrophy as you increase volume, generally hypertrophy seems to increase for most people. So if you can kind of increase your volume by spreading it out further through the week, you should see higher quality volumes produced, I guess.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: And do you think there's any actually legitimacy to maybe the fact that if you try and start with low frequency you can get a better work capacity build up more fatigue resistance in that one muscle group because you're doing so much in one day so then when you do spread it out it's kind of like it is easy to incrementally increase do you think that could be of any benefit i just kind of randomly thought of that there
1: yeah possibly but the only the only thing that might go against that is because the frequency is so low you might lose some of that um, because when we start talking about adaptations to improve your work capacity, I mean, really those are more endurance adaptations, which if you take too long a period of time between training sessions, I think you would tend to lose more quickly. Um, So there might be a trade-off there. Yeah, you're doing more in a session, but then you're waiting so long to do it again, you know, there might be a detriment there. So it's hard to say. I think there might like i said i think there might be it might cancel each other out possibly Mm -hmm. so
0: and then just to finish up on kind of frequency in terms of kind of people who are maybe novice versus people more advanced do you think there's kind of application to have different training frequencies depending on that for maybe a novice they recover maybe pretty quickly could they handle higher training frequencies do you think they'd actually benefit from maybe quite high frequencies
1: i don't know if a novice would i think a novice is fine with a Two you know two day per week program I mean not I mean novices respond so well um, that uh, i don't think i don't think a novice would really benefit from a really high frequency program um, you know i i think I think when you start to get in more advanced things like that uh, I, I think I think that type of stuff is is really of more benefit to people that have been training for a while mm-hmm. so
0: cool, yeah, I guess people think of it as and there's more time to practice you're stimulating mps more and they kind of get a bit obsessed with these things yes if you've got your volume set you've got your intensity there do would you say frequencies may be one of the lesser important things within the training week or kind of over time
1: um if you're meeting a certain minimum frequency i think the 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 old bro split of the one body part per week i think the day is pretty clear that that's Mm -hmm is not quite as as effective so but I say th- if you're doing two days per week three days per week there's probably not a whole lot of difference there I think Brad's got a study right now that he's working on where they're actually comparing a two and three day per week frequency but volume equated that will be really interesting because no one I, that I know of has really compared those frequencies it's always been one versus three in a lot of the study and, and the three is pretty much almost across the board shown to be better than one but but we don't have like a two versus three or a two versus four you know three versus four or something like that so Mm -hmm.
0: cool and on the kind of note of intensity and volume if we were going to give out some kind of general recommendations what sort of intensities would you tend to program for hypertrophy would there be i know a wide range is very beneficial would you say there's benefit to focusing on a certain kind of rep range for any particular reason
1: I don't think there's any, I mean, I think the data is pretty clear there's no specific hypertrophy rep range. So I think there's a lot of personal preference. Now some people might argue, is there benefit to varying your repetition ranges possibly? Um, there's not much data on that I would I would say, um, you know, if you're doing it in blocks, you know, there's one study that was recently published where they alternated two week blocks of high rep and then low rep training. Um, but they didn't. The hypertrophy was the same as, as the people that just did consistently low rep or consistently high rep. So, um, so there wasn't much of a benefit there. I do, I do speculate there may be a benefit to varying your repetition ranges within the same training session. So, um, you know, using your moderately heavy weights um, at first to get some tension stimulus, and then following that up with met- more metabolic work. I think there may definitely may be some benefit there. Um, but if you are interested in hypertrophy, I would, I would say just from a time efficiency standpoint, I mean, it's probably best to stick with at least the more moderate loads, you know, because if you're training really heavy loads, you know, three rep maxes, four rep maxes, things like that, it's a lot harder to get the volume. You got to do a lot more sets to get the volume in. Um, and then there's, you know, the stress on joint tissues and, and things like that. Uh, so, um, I, you know, I know there's speculation that maybe, Maybe if you do some strength phases or something like that, it'll improve the weights that 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 you can do. But you know that really, I would say hasn't been investigated. I do know the data is pretty clear though is prolonged periods of low volume training. When I say low volume, I'm not talking necessarily in, in terms of sets. I'm more talking about the the in terms of uh, repetition range. So if you're doing a lot of three rep sets, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, the data is pretty clear. I think if you do extended periods like that, your, your hypertrophy tends to plateau. So, so you definitely don't want to do too long of periods. In, in you know, if you're gonna, you know, if you are training in those really strength ranges, I would say, yeah, you don't want to do too long of periods in those in those rep ranges. But other than that, you know, I don't think there's any specific hypertrophy range. So, cool. Uh,
0: yeah, I think. I, and we spoke to well, I spoke to Brad Schoenfeld on the podcast, and we spoke about how there is no hypertrophy rep range, and it's more like you said about an efficient rep range where the volume's high enough to kind of give that magnitude of um enough a load on the bar to stress your muscles, but also it's not so much that the volume is so low that you're not really providing that obvious yeah. dose response with volume. So would you say, is that moderate rep range, is that like 6 to 12 reps just for the listeners?
1: Yeah, yeah, probably. I Even like 15 and, and something like that. Uh, you know, the thing about like the 20 to 30 rep ranges, is it, that's hard to do. There's a certain practical aspect of this. I mean, you could get good hypertrophy from doing, you know, 20 to 30 reps to failure on everything. But, you know, I certainly don't want to be doing 20 to 30 reps to failure on squats or, or, or something like that, you know. Um, you know, and Brad talked about his high rep study versus low rep study. You know, some of the subjects at first were throwing up. You know, w- w- that were doing the twenty to thirty rep sets. So, so there's a certain practical element too of staying in that moderate repetition range. You know, just doing nothing but high rep sets just can be just wipe you out. So, um, so again, I, there's there's even you know ignoring any potential. Physiological benefit or hypertrophy benefit that may or may not exist. Again, is kind of speculation at this point. You know, ignoring that, there is obviously a practical benefit to varying your repetition ranges. Mm-hmm. You know, in that sense. So,
0: and I guess maybe in a related sense, that's why the myo reps by Bjorffatelli. Probably didn't pronounce his name wrong. Is quite nice because you do have to do that one high rep set, but then it's short rest periods. Then you do the yes. five rep, three to five reps, short rest yeah. periods. If people want to look that up, just search MyoReps. Reps. It will come right up in Google. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And then, so we touched on intensity. Now, what about uh, volume? I know you and Brad worked on your meta analysis on kind of sets. Um, yeah. What sort of, at first, actually, how do you define volume? Because it's quite a difficult kind of thing to really theorize because there's different kind of if you do a romanian deadlift virtual versus a conventional deadlift a sumo deadlift they're all different exercises how do you then equate a volume between that then there's yeah sets times reps or sets times reps times load how do you go about that james or yeah that's
1: that's really that's a good question i mean you know there's volume load which is what you just mentioned sets times reps times load but you can't compare different exercise volume load across different exercises and you also can't compare volume load even within the same exercise if you're doing radically different repetition ranges, you know. Um, so, for example, again, there's Brad's study where, you know, the, the one group did 20 to 30 reps to failure, and the other group did like 8 to 12 reps to failure. Well, the volume load was th- like three times as high in the high rep group, you know, but even though both groups are doing three sets to failure, you know, so... So you can't even compare the volume loads in that sense. Um, you know, Greg Nukols uh, mentioned that you know one way to look at it is you know just comparing maybe the number of hard sets really in a mm-hmm. sense, which it might be a good way to look at it. I think the only detriment that is is if your repetitions get too low, then you know you know I, you know three sets of three reps to failure is not going to give you the hypertrophy benefit of three sets of ten reps to failure. Even those th- those are both three hard sets really. Mm-hmm. Um, so but I think once you get a certain past a certain repetition threshold yeah you can kind of compare maybe just the number of hard sets if, if you just think in terms of volume in the, in, the, in that sense uh, so and I think that's what's applicable to our meta analysis really I mean is, is really the number of hard sets or sets to failure or near failure really is, is kind of what our analysis kind of was looking at mm-hmm. so
0: and I guess even like you said Brad did that study where he compared the lower repetitions and then the higher repetitions, same number of sets, and the guys doing yeah. the higher uh, repetitions saw more hypertrophy. When in your study, you came to the conclusion that for the average trainee, it was kind of ten sets per muscle group per week was like the minimum amount, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was um, to optimize hypertrophy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but again, I want to say that that's that's again based on average, and, and you know, you had mentioned the article I just did with Brett Contreras. These are based on averages. That doesn't mean everybody needs to be doing 10 plus sets per week. I mean, there's some people who respond very well to low volume programs um, and don't need to do that. And then there's other people who who might need to be in the higher end, you know, 15, 20 sets per week. So so there's going to be a range um, that just kind of gives you a starting point to start from, you know, 10 weekly sets, which is not really a huge amount. I mean, you know, if you're training a body part three days per week, that's, you know, three to four sets mm-hmm. e- each session, work set. So it's not... You know, it's not a ridiculous amount of volume, so um, it's definitely doable for, for most people, um, but uh, but like I said, I mean, you know, it, it's kind of interesting, you know, me myself right now, you know, with relaunching my site and, and some other changes that have been going on in my life, you know, things have been really stressful, so I've had to cut back my training right now. I'm only doing two whole body workouts a week right now because um, that's all I've just been able to do. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, and so I'm not doing a weekly volume of 10 plus sets per muscle group right now. But the interesting thing is, is I'm actually hitting personal best for reps on a number of exercises, uh, which has been kind of interesting. But I am doing, I have been doing things like drop sets and things like that. So even though I'm not doing 10 straight sets, I am doing, you know, using some techniques like drop sets and things. So um you know and there is a, a an unpublished study right now i can't really give much details cuz it's not been published yet but they basically looked at drop sets and found that drop sets produce or a single drop set produced uh just as much if not more hypertrophy than three straight sets so you know it'll be interesting when that study gets published but uh but i can't really give the details on it but um so 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 that, that was kind of interesting to me that uh you know, maybe I'm one of these guys that responds better on the lower volume. It's, it's hard to say. I, w- I will say when I look back over my training career, usually when I've been at my best is on, you know, not extremely low volume, not like a Mike Menser type program, but, mm-hmm. but definitely towards the lower volume side. And maybe that's just, maybe that's a genetic thing with me. You know, it's, it's hard to say. Um, but occasionally still throwing in. The occasional high frequency or higher volume, just for very short periods of time, seems to work for me. But uh, but again, each each person is going to have to find what's going to work for them, mm-hmm. really. So that 10 sets, you know, that's a starting point. It's a starting point. You know, you see how you respond. You know, if you're if you're feeling like you're not recovered or you're just exhausted, then you know, try scaling back the volume. Um, you know, if you've been plateau, you know, if you've been going well for a while doing that, and then you plateau. If you've got some room to increase the volume, try it, see what happens, see if you start to gain again. If you don't, then okay, maybe it's time to scale back and and try something different. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's never there's no there's no one size fits all, and even for a single person, there's there's no one program that's gonna work for you all the time. Mm -hmm. So
0: And in terms of trying to assess whether a program's working for you, what would you what kind of markers would you look at for hypertrophy specifically?
1: Yeah, so for me personally, what I do for myself, because, you know, none of us have a, have access to ultrasound measurements to, to determine muscle size, and, and things like circumference measurements and things like that are hard to do with any accuracy, so I just go by my performance in the gym pretty much for the most part, you know, am I slowly increasing in reps or or weight on exercises, I mean, it's really the, the classic way most people assess progress, you know, mm-hmm. um, and... And from there, I, I basically, especially since I've been training for a long time, I would assume that you know any increases in performance, um, at least, and I would say in the moderate repetition range, because if you're seeing increases in let's say one rep max, that um, and there's data, a lot of recent data to show this. Even if you're well trained, you can get increases in one rep max with no increases in muscle size. So, yeah. so I'm talking more increases in performance in your in your more moderate to high repetition ranges. If you're seeing increases there, I would say that could be just a good marker that, hey, you're probably getting some increases in muscle size along with that. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's interesting, I've actually talked to Brad about possibly doing a a study where um, we would take, look at uh, different um, testing loads, like, you know, one rep max versus 10 rep max versus, let's say, 20, 30 rep max, and then the changes over time, and, you know, what correlates best with hypertrophy? Is it is it a change in a 10 rep max? Is it a change in a 30 rep max? Is it a change in a one rep max? What correlates best? It would be really, I think, interesting to see that. And I think it would have a lot of applicability to people who are training for hypertrophy because then at least you'd have an idea, hey, if my 10 rep max, you know, if we saw the best correlation with 10 rep max, then you could say, hey, well, you know, you want to see your 10 rep max improving on a regular basis and that'll give you a good good indicator. But, you know, that's you know right now that's just been in discussion we haven't done anything with that right now so
0: well i think you should definitely do it because that would give kind of trainers coaches everyone a way of actually kind of establishing how should they test whether they are gaining muscle because of course there's loads of different ways you can do it but if you've got an objective like you've done that study and you found it's like a high correlation between that and kind of improving improvements in muscle size then yeah that'll be really really useful and yeah just to touch on why one rep max might not be the best solution to kind of seeing that increase is that because that's mainly neurologic it can be neurological whereas say maybe a 10 rep max isn't so much
1: yes exactly i mean that's really it uh um you know there's the recent study by jeremy out of jeremy jeremy lenicky and others uh you know they did daily one rep max testing and um, they They had people they their one rep max went up just doing a one rep max every day, but they had no increase in muscle size and it was actually a fairly significant increase in one rep max too so just practicing your one rep max, you can get an increase in one rep max performance and 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 so if you 're training a lot in those low repetition ranges, you can get fairly nice increases in one rep max without any change in muscle size mm-hmm. uh, um, and so I would say definitely the data there's more and more data coming out now that suggest, that is indicating that training for strength and training for size are really two different endeavors because mm-hmm. um, you know, there used to be the old adage "Is "Hey, if you want to get bigger, you got to get stronger and yep. that, at least if we if we define strength in terms of of you know max force production, it's not necessarily true so:
0: yeah, I guess yeah loads of people see that, and you already touched on it in terms of people doing strength phases to make themselves stronger for the kind of volume periods when they're attacking more hypertrophy. I guess, I don't know if you're kind of, you weren't completely sure with it and whether that was because I've spoken to Mike Isretel about it. And in the fact that when you are stronger and you can deal with more loads, your actual ability to then do as more volume is kind of cut back because you're using a heavier weight, that's more fatiguing. So then you consequently can't do as much. So not saying you should make yourself weak, but the fact that you're getting stronger might not necessarily be potentiating further hypertrophy. Do you think it's yeah. got any kind of truth? Yeah,
1: I think there's some truth to that. You know, I, I really do. And and uh, um, and again, when you look at some of the periodization studies and things, uh, although they haven't directly looked at that, you know, again, there's there's some evidence to indicate that might be true. And even like the, like I said, the, the recent Lenicky paper, you know, so mm-hmm. um, because they compared two groups, actually, it, it was only a three week study, unfortunately, but. You know, they had one group do one rep max every day, and they had another group do one rep max in addition to three sets of 10, you know, each day. And, and, uh, um, doing the one rep max every day didn't seem to potentiate the hypertrophy mm-hmm. anymore. You know, the hypertrophy came purely from doing the three sets of 10. So, so yeah, I would probably tend to agree with Mike on that aspect. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, it just sounds so right to say a stronger muscle can then be made bigger. Um, but when Mike put it out to me in those lines, it kind of that made sense because volume, especially now we're realizing how different strength and volume programming can be. And yeah. I guess it's really good to see there's more programming and more uh, more studies coming out on hypertrophy. But it's yeah. not actually, a lot of the old textbooks say like Mike um, Ripito's work with Kilgore, Practical Programming, and kind of old textbooks as well that we get, a lot of those are on kind of strength training. So they are programmed built for periodization for strength. Do you think is that, and I know Brad, for me, Brad's book, um, Max with the Max Muscle Plan was like the first training plan that was actually specifically for muscle size and it was set up a lot differently to these old textbooks that were specifically for strength. How do you kind of design your training programs, your macro cycles, what do you do for those?
1: That, that's a good question. I, at first, I mean, if I, if I had clients, um, I would want to know what they did in the past first. You know, what, what have they been doing? Um, and so I think part of it a lot would depend on what they've already been doing in the past. But um, I do, I think, you know, I mentioned it earlier. I kind of am favoring now this idea of kind of volume ramps, yeah. where you start off with lower volume and increase volume, or whether it's a four-week period or whatever, and mainly possibly... Um, using both frequency and and inter-session volume as ways to do that Mm -hmm. Um, I think there may be advantages to that approach Um, you know it'll be interesting to see some of this you know like drop set study stuff come out and everything's like that uh, which may actually you know change the way we program as well especially you know for people that you know I'd say people that are lacking time, you know, uh, I mean, like myself right now, I've been mean, utilizing drop, drop sets, things like that. I think those can be really effective ways to get in what we would call effective volume. Yeah, you know, um, and, and I think you know, uh, Bergé, you know, with his mile reps, that was he, that was kind of the same concept. He yeah. talked about effective volume, you know, because, and what I mean by that, if you know, anyone who's listening who d- doesn't know what I mean by that is, you know, let's say I'm doing a let's go back to Brad's study where he compared three sets of ten to three sets of thirty to, to failure. Well, the hyper, hypertrophy was the same between the groups. But that three sets of thirty to failure, you know your first 15, 20 reps are pretty easy, right? Um, and so suddenly it's like the last 10 reps that what we would call the effective reps because um, you've you've built up that fatigue and now you your body has to start recruiting, additional fibers to try to continue to push that weight Um, but you've got to do that first 15 to 20 reps to get into those effective reps and so you know bergay when he first came out with the mile reps you know and then when we think of things like drop sets those are possibly techniques to increase the number of effective reps without necessarily increasing your your the length of your training session Um, Mm -hmm. because basically you're trying to use fatigue to your advantage from a from a fiber recruitment standpoint things like that so and
0: with your drop sets, do you take those to failure? Do you have, is that like a short rest period? Like you finish your main working set and then you go through drop set strips, stripping the weight. How do you program your own? Drop yeah. Set? So I'm like, what I'm doing right now
1: is, and I'm just doing it for isolation movements because drop sets for compound movements are just, are just <laughs> hell. Um, and plus it's hard, you know, if you're, if you're training by yourself, it's hard to do a drop set, you know, like if with a barbell and stuff, you'd have to get up, take the, you know, it's just too hard. So with machine, it's easy to do though with machines because you just change the pin Or, and things like that, uh, or dumbbells, it's easy to do. So, um, so what I've been doing is, you know, I'll do one set to failure of of like 10 reps or so to failure, and then I immediately drop the weight by 20%. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'll be using 80% of the weight that I just did, and then I just do reps to failure again. And usually, I can do around four reps to failure with a 20% drop. Then I do another 20% drop, and again, it's around four reps to failure, and then I do a third 20% drop, and again, it's usually around four four or five reps to failure for that third 20% drop and and so um, right now that's been working really well for me that the basically the one set to failure with three uh, 20% drops after that mm-hmm. um, so um, but yeah I just do that for isolation movements uh, just from a practical perspective and, and also since I'm doing whole body workouts I just I don't want to be totally exhausted, you know, if I was doing that with compound movements, I wouldn't be able to make it through the workout, you know, yeah. especially with the larger muscle groups, it'd just, it'd be too exhausting, so.
0: Yeah, definitely, that's exactly the way if I program drop sets, Is how I do it, I often find, I had tried dropping by 10%, and it was just such a small increment, you could hardly actually get any reps out, so yeah, the 20% makes yeah. a good, good sense. When yeah. uh, we're seeing the benefit of drop sets, what kind of pathway are you seeing this, kind of the muscle pathway damage, kind of stress or kind of tension, what you think? That's
1: a good, good question. Um, and I've talked with Brad about this because it seems a little bit counterintuitive because, you know, if, you, if anybody's familiar with Brad's work, and actually one of Brad's studies I was, I was involved with um, regarding uh, rest intervals and training, a lot of the data coming out now shows that it's better to rest for a long period of time between sets, to, to get hypertrophy. Well, a drop set is essentially essentially no rest training, right? I mean, you're just doing successive sets with no rest. So, the question is, well, why would that be beneficial for hypertrophy? And my, I've talked with Brad about this and our speculation is perhaps it has um, an effect similar to vascular occlusion. Right. So, by keeping the tension on the muscle but continuing to go, you're, number one, you're building a massive muscle pump. Um, and it's, it's continuing to occlude the blood vessels in the muscle tissue. And, and so perhaps it has an, an impact that's similar to vascular occlusion. But then when you rest, you know, let's say you take like a one-minute rest, you kind of lose some of that effect. Mm-hmm. But you're still fatigued from the last set, so, it, so then it, it interferes with your... Um, kind of interferes with the next set right and so you're so then it affects your training volume but then if you rest a really long period of time you get enough rest and now the tension takes over so that's kind of my thinking on why there might you know why there might be a benefit to there but that's purely speculation right now but the, mm-hmm. to me that might be a mechanism behind how drop sets and and also things like the mile reps i know bird you know bird is friends with Wernbaum and i remember him writing you know uh, this is probably ten years ago. Um, I guess Wernbaum did some just informal data collection on the the reps and said that it seemed to have some effects similar to vascular occlusion. So, so my guess is is some of those types of techniques where you can try to continue to to keep going. Um, you know, whether you know with the myoreps, reps obviously you take a really short rest and then you keep going, and then you take a really short rest and keep going or a drop set, you know, which is a little bit different, you keep going by decreasing the load every time, Um, perhaps there's a vascular occlusion-like effect, so.
0: And it's, I think, that's what my thoughts on it were as well, when we kind of, whenever I've done it, you do get a crazy pump and that just yeah. made me think back to the kind of metabolic stress that Brad Schoenfeld had talked about in his, even in his papers and in his books and everything. So yeah, yeah the the pump you get with mile reps, I mean, and some of the the de- de- delayed onset muscle soreness I've had is uh, some I've never had before, especially in like calves,
1: isolation movements. Oh I really yeah, like it for.
0: Uh, <laughs> I did
1: I did some mile reps for calves one time. I'll never do it again because my calves <laughs> were just so. I mean, like a week later they were still so sore. I mean, it was just like. I mean, it just hurt to touch him, I was like, okay, that's a little bit too much muscle damage, you know um, yeah, it was just that was a that, uh, that was just ridiculous amount of soreness that's the most sore I've ever been in my calves by doing myo reps <laughs> on calves so
0: and uh, talking about muscle soreness actually do you, what are your thoughts on terms of it being like a marker for kind of whether you're doing enough volume, potentially if you're sore, then you might think, right that's good, I can continue and if I'm not sore, maybe I need to add a bit more do you think that's got any potential avenues or do you think it's not kind of you don't need to be sore that doesn't matter
1: no, I don't think you need to be sore and in fact, I think there may be detriments to being sore too sore yeah. at least um the reason I say that is because um and we know that really from some recent protein synthesis research so the data shows you now i've uh now actually it was Stu Phillips you know some of the work out of his lab uh you know they looked at um protein synthesis and whether it actually was related to muscle hypertrophy. And what they found is, is, you know, if you take a beginner, let's say, and you first put them on a weight training program, they get really sore and everything, well, that protein synthesis that they are stimulating is all going just to repair muscle damage. It's actually not going to build new muscle tissue. Mm -hmm. And so, that's why early on, the protein synthesis response doesn't necessarily correlate with increases in muscle size. But once you've been trained, you know, let's say you've done 8, 10 weeks of training, and you're not really getting sore from your training, now the protein synthesis you're stimulating is actually correlating with muscle size. So, so the idea that you need to get sore to get bigger probably isn't, isn't true, and in fact, too much soreness might actually be a bad thing, I mean, because what that indicates is you've ca- caused a lot of muscle damage, and now your body's got to all, spend all its resources just repairing that damage rather than actual building new tissue, that um, adding on to the muscle tissue that's already there. So, now that's not to say you don't want some muscle damage. The reason, the evidence seems to indicate you at least want a little bit, um, but it doesn't necessarily need to get sore, but um, we know that, uh, you know, exercises at, at um, when you do an exercise through a full range of motion, you get better hypertrophy than a partial range of motion. And the reason for that would be because you're, you're putting the muscle under more stretch, which is usually more damaging to yep. the tissue. So obviously there is a component to having some muscle damage. So you want some muscle damage. You just don't want too much. I mean, if you want to cause yourself a lot of muscle damage, do do a bunch of downhill running. Um, you know, that will cause you a, a huge amount of muscle damage, a lot of soreness, but it's not going to be good for building your legs. So, mm-hmm. um, so there seems to be a little bit of a sweet spot in yep. terms of muscle damage, um, as far as if you're trying to 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 get bigger.
0: Yeah, you certainly don't want to be kind of the person who. I mean everyone's been sore in their hamstrings after doing something like romanian deadlifts and you've done so many so many romanian deadlifts that you can't then do them in your next session and if that's cutting down the load you can use or the volumes you're producing then we know that's not going to be a good thing yeah cool uh so i want to come back to because i definitely wanted to touch on this in a bit more detail the article you did for for brett and i thought this was pretty cool because You kind of talked about it when you were doing the conference at Bath, which was just nice and to hear about. And I specifically want to talk about potentially the fact that a lot of people, when they look at studies, they do look at these averages and especially for like muscle hypertrophy studies. And there was even somewhere in some studies, people see kind of, I saw up to 20% growth and then some people see actually negative growth. And obviously we see a middle picture as the people who don't go into the study itself. I wonder if you could just touch on that and maybe the role of maybe genetics and kind of the different things you've seen within studies.
1: Yeah, that's that's the thing. I mean, there's there's a huge variation in response when you look at training studies or diet studies things like that. Uh um yeah, when it comes to an increase in muscle size and, and you know what? I mean, even ignoring the data, you know, ignoring the research, we all know we have friends or people we know, we have some friends who it seems like they can just look at a weight and they, they blow up. Right. And then we have some people that just seem like they train so hard and they barely get anything. Um, so there's a, there is a a huge genetic component to hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. Um, some people are just more blessed than others. You know, I look at, uh, I look at Jeff Nippard, you know, and, um, and I mean, I don't know if, if, if any people have ever seen his mom, I mean, his mom is just like muscular and ripped I mean I mean so so obviously Jeff is g- highly genetically blessed you know um, but you know some people could do the exact same training program as Jeff and n- never never get even close to the type of muscle he has mm-hmm. and so um, so it's really interesting the genetic you know there, there's, there's a, just a huge component genetic component to how we respond and I think Brad recently mentions there's even a rodent study that was just published that even within the same person, different muscles may respond differently.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, and, and most people probably observe that about themselves. Some people, I mean, I know with myself, you know, I've had compliments on my back development, you know. Um, now, whether that's because I was, you know, I used to be a competitive swimmer, which may may have played a role, but, you know, um, my back has always been my best body part, but I don't train it any harder than any other body part, yeah, and my worst body parts have been like my, my calves and my legs um, yet you know I've never ignored my legs I've always trained them just as much as I do everything else, and they just don't you know they just don't respond like the rest of my body does so uh, um so we've you know most people even notice that in themselves and and so it's really interesting. I, I think this type of research is in its infancy. Um, you know, you know, are, are there genes that we can identify that can determine how people respond to different types of training programs? I mean, that, you know, that's, there's, a, there's one or two studies out there like that, but there really needs to be a lot more work in that area. Because um, then you can start to get a better idea of, you know, hey, are, are you a person that needs to do higher volume you know or maybe you're a person that needs to do lower volume you don't respond well to the higher volume stuff you know so there's you know um there's so many factors at, at work there
0: yeah i think that's where like you said when we're talking about kind of identifying how much volume you might need you look back at your training history look at when you've responded well or even look at maybe like you said you're a swimmer so you have a big well-developed back maybe if you're like a long distance runner and you're really good at that be sucked at sprinting potentially you've yeah. got more slow twitch muscle fibers potentially you need more volume then to be able to grow rather than kind of attacking kind of heavy weights where you just don't do very well with that yeah um, and i think i also i can completely concur and it was kind of it's eye opening for someone who hasn't really thought about it before when you talk about genetics you talk about little things like the size of your bones even like your wrists if you've got smaller wrists then your forearms going to look bigger if you have got small ankles your, your calves will look bigger and then muscle yeah. insertions. If you've got good bicep insertions, you're gonna have big biceps, regardless yeah. of at the actual size. Because I've even got, I w- I've got clients who are like, oh, I want really big arms, and I look at like, they send me photos of and they, the insertions just, they don't lend to the size or the yeah. type of arm that they want. And it, people can get really frustrated with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, uh, you can only be a just a, a you can only enhance a, a, a basically a, a, be a bigger version of you really. I mean, you know, I look at old pictures of me graduating from high school and stuff like that. And I just look like a bigger version of myself back then, really. I mean, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I'm not radically different in my shape or anything like that. I'm just I'm just bigger. I'm just, you know. But overall, my shape is about the same. I, you know, I still have the, you know, as a swimmer, I had wide shoulders and a narrow waist. And I still have wide shoulders and a narrow waist, you know. I mean, as long as I'm not, you know, eating too much and things. But, you know, uh uh, I've just enhanced, basically, really just enhanced what I already had. Yeah. So,
0: And that's the key thing people to take away is you can enhance what you've got. You can definitely improve upon where you are, but you shouldn't necessarily correlate someone's kind of muscularity with their knowledge base because i mean yeah someone like jeff who is actually well educated and that's why he's very big but even if he wasn't necessarily that well educated he'd probably say himself when he first started training he was probably bigger than most guys just from the yeah he responded so well to just lifting
1: yeah yeah that's the thing it's like you know i i've seen some ridiculous arguments on facebook and stuff where um or like people are you know like um you know Brad is not like Brad is you know the most knowledgeable guy on hypertrophy out there right yeah. um, but he's not a real big guy he's not huge um, but he still he has one bodybuilding shows I mean at his at his you know height and frame you know he's just he has a small frame you know he's, he's not very tall and so yeah he's, he's he genetically he's never going to be really huge but that is not in, indicative of his knowledge base. I mean, like I said, he's the most knowledgeable guy on hypertrophy out there. And so, yeah, that's why we can't, you can't take, you know, um, someone's appearance and, and equate it with their knowledge because because of the, 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 the huge role that genetics plays alone, you know, so. Yeah, I think
0: that's a fantastic point. And I think I'm going to round it up there for everyone because I think we've kind of given a great insight into hypertrophy and kind of, and especially the importance of individuality and the the main takeaways from programming for hypertrophy so i want to make sure people know how they can get more from you james and i think the best thing for them to do is probably in my opinion go to weightology and they can check out your membership um, which is actually a really reasonable price it's it's really really great and like you said it's providing stuff that isn't out there at the moment It's, it's unique to you and you're putting a lot of work into it i'm absolutely sure of that Uh is there anywhere else you think people should check you out? I know you've got like even on your website you've got what podcasts you've been on before. There's loads of great podcasts I must have been.
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, if you go to my site really you can find everything. So I've got um lists lists uh, um like I said, there's the members area of my site. I've got a lot of free content on there. I've got a um if you're curious about all my scientific publications, I've got a list of all the publications I've been an author on. Um if you want to hear more interviews, podcasts, i got a list of every podcast I've ever been on on there on the site. Um, And then I also at the bottom of this, you know, I have links to my Facebook page, to my Instagram, uh, to my Twitter. And so those are uh, other ways people can follow me as well. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, I think if I was going to recommend anything for people to get right into it, would be the body fat testing, because I think that's incredibly interesting. And it just opens your eyes to why we shouldn't necessarily bother with all of these measurements. They can be really cumbersome. Yeah, yeah. So I want to thank you so much, James, for coming on and spending time here. I know the audience will have really appreciated it. So thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: Cheers, guys. Take care.